Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. Uh, we're looking at student loans today. Should interest rates come down or go up? Uh, there's also some lessons to learn from Cambridge. There always is. Uh, OFS has a new data set to play with and a whole clutch of issues in drama schools. It's all coming up. Well, first of all, they don't do gravy in chip shops, so that's outrageous. <laughs> um, but second of all, because it's completely priced out, if you base what I, where I currently am to London... You w- I would never be able to live in London based on the weights. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to take the antihistamines to cope with the pollen of HE policy. As usual, a couple of fantastic guests. Uh, in Clapham, Aaron Porter is Associate Director of Governance at Advanced HE and Chair of BPP University. Aaron, your highlight of the week, please. Hello, Jim. Yeah, my highlight of the week, I, d- I do a little bit of mentoring for um, student union officers, but in their role as student governors. And uh, it's at that point of the year where they're, they're at transition, and, and it was just actually just lovely to hear about some of their reflections and achievements in what's been a really difficult year. But actually hearing the change that some student union officers are making with their uh, institutions was really heartening, um, something that happened earlier this week. And in sunny Preston, Steph Lomas is VP Education at UCLan Students Union. Steph, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Well, following on from Aaron, my highlight would be receiving my 360 report and seeing all the lovely comments from both staff and students on my work as I uh, move on from the union. A reign of terror comes to an end uh, <laughs> as, a, as a cloud moves into the sunshine in Preston. Anyway, yes, we start this week with student loans. Two student unions are telling the government to increase the interest rate on student loans. Aaron, what on earth's going on here? Well, yes. I mean, student finance never seems to be far from the from the news. Uh, and there's been a flurry of stories uh, relating to, to higher education finance. But yes, beginning with this story, looking at uh, LSE and the University of Sheffield Students Union, who students unions who have got together, uh, they commissioned London Economics to look at ways in which you may be able to reward or rebate students some money, uh, for, given the experience that they've had this year. And of course, counterintuitively, it's actually by increasing the rate of interest on the student loans that you can generate more money into the system that would allow you to, uh, or allow the Treasury at least, to do something different with that money. And the argument put forward by uh, these students' unions is that if if the interest rate is raised sufficiently, uh, it could generate enough cash for £2,700 to be put back into the pockets of students. Uh, Of course, there's lots of uh, contested arguments about what should happen with student loan interest. Um, Others have argued, including the former minister, Chris Skidmore, that student interest rates should be reduced as a way of benefiting students. So it's a lively argument. But my personal view is that given the year that students have had, anything that's cost neutral for universities, but puts cash in the pockets of students, has to be given some serious consideration. So I think it's a a welcome contribution. Steph, obviously, there's a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, it tells us some interesting things about, you know, what might happen out the back of the auger review response in the autumn. But, you know, specifically, what these student unions have done is try to solve this lots of students wanting a refund or rebate problem, doesn't it? So, you know, what's your sense? Are students still upset about the way the year's gone? Are they still hankering after some kind of compensation or rebate or whatever it is? I think that's always going to be the case. I mean, it's it was said in the uh, letter that was published by the student unions in The Guardian, you know, we do believe in an ideal world that education be, should be free, but in a year where students are calling for compensation on fees, we need to create a different situation. I think given the fact that it was only on May 17th where um, the government was said, right, we can all return to on-campus learning, at that point students are taking assessments they're not really thinking about travelling back to campuses and regaining that lost year, and I don't think they would be able to, even if they wanted to. Um, I think students are looking for some form of understanding and 
consideration in terms of fees to show that this year has not been a normal year and they want that sort of evidence within what they are paying for. And I think it's a, it's an interesting um, suggestion here about this cost-neutral solution to universities and the taxpayers, because I think that's always been quite a political argument around, you know, what we do for students and how the reaction from the taxpayer will be. And obviously with universities um, and the sector as a whole uh, financially being quite precarious at the moment, I think anything that is going to be cost-neutral to all parties is something to be highly considered. Yeah, there's a really interesting distinction, I think, to be made. Uh, in, in what way has student experiences been, uh, you know, undermined or, ch- or, or a challenge this year? I think providers will argue from a learning outcomes point of view, um, whilst things have been done differently, to a large degree, learning outcomes have been preserved. But I think whatever, wh- whatever your perspective is on, on that, it's the wider experience that has clearly been diminished. And I think it's on that basis that there are legitimate and genuine grounds for students to be con- given some sort of of refund or, or rebate. So I suspect this will this will rumble on, not least because we know there are a record number of complaints in the system. Many of them are working their way through institutional complaints processes at the moment. Uh, some of them will, I'm sure, get to the Office of the Independent Adjudicator. So I think this could run and run for at least another 12 months. Aaron, let me ask you, you know, a, a question about this. You know, it's cost neutral, this proposal. It's economic modelling from a couple of student unions. Now, quite a bit of chat on Twitter saying... Oh my God, you know, this is hardly, you know, the riots of 68. Why, are, you know what I mean? Why are students unions, you know, kind of, you know, acquiescing in this way and so on? But yet, on the other hand, as we record today, you know, we're hurtling towards a comprehensive spending review on a day when an education recovery czar who, who thought he was going to get 10 billion could only get one and a half billion out of the treasury. So I'm really caught between this kind of, you know, should people be pragmatic in the run up to the CSR on student loans and the student loan scheme or should students be radical? And, and, you know, that debate will not be one you're unfamiliar with. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it, it, it's very clear that higher education is way, way, way down the shopping list of priorities for the Treasury and indeed the government. So uh, the idea that, um, uh, you know, Bag, bu- buckets and buckets of free money is going to be thrown towards higher education is is for the is for the clouds in in my view. So I think it was really uh, really welcoming to see su- a couple of students' unions supported by a larger number try and roll their sleeves up and engage in the detail in a pragmatic practical solution uh, that really uh, would. Seem to be quite a win-win. Uh, I, I think it, it makes a nice contrast from some of the, um, you know, nicely principled but simply outlandish uh, calls that we've seen, uh, you know, from parts of the sector, from parts even of students' unions in NUS over the last few years. Uh, I think this was a much more serious uh, contribution, and as a consequence, uh, worthy of a great deal more uh, respect than that it got in some quarters. Steph, let me ask you. So, you know, as we get towards, <clears throat> you know, the autumn, obviously. There are questions over whether or not the government will implement uh, types of number controls, either on um, you know minimum entry criteria for students or minimum exit outcomes in terms of you know the famed search for low value courses. You could also reduce the amount of money you give to universities per head. That would be controversial in lots of quarters for obvious reasons. But I guess the other option here is you make the loan scheme cheaper, and it strikes me that. You know, when Aaron was knocking around 10 years ago fighting the tripling of tuition fees, that was a fairly easy, you know, slogan to sell to students in terms of campaigning. But if the proposals on the table in the autumn are things like, you know, 40-year terms for student loans or, you know, changes to the repayment threshold, that's not really as kind of interesting and unifying, is it, for students from a campaigning perspective? I think that the bigger issue is that students, as much as we try to understand the system in terms of loan repayments, it's a really complex system to us. And we just want education. That's what we're there for. And, you know, I was a student that came through non-traditional means. I'd have signed anything in order to get the education that I'm desperate for. Um, So I think that there's a bigger conversation about making sure that everyone has real 
like intrinsic knowledge about what they are signing up for and what things mean. And half of the conversation there is about making sure that the language is accessible and that students can actually understand what's going on. I think there's an interesting point that you raised though, Jim, around um, numbers, limiting numbers. Um, and that is that if we do that, if, if that is what happens, we are going to lose out on so much um, of what makes education great, the different stories that come together, because what is what is taught and what education is, is not simply what is put into lectures and web webinars or s seminars. It is what students teach each other and what students teach the institution as well. And I think if they were to do that, they would absolutely decimate what higher education can be, which is transformative for everyone. I think what makes this more complicated as well is that higher education appears to be in a uh, sort of financial battle with further education and adult learning and potentially even now schools with this uh, uh, kind of catch-up premium and and and, uh, and and redress that was being that's been talked about over the last 24 hours and so it, you know when higher education is put up against those two and the government has made clear intentions that it is going to um, support uh, a new lifelong learning entitlement uh, I think on its on its own terms is a really welcome um, a policy announcement that will allow you know second chance learners and adult learners to reskill and upskill but if that comes at the cost of uh, leveling up other sectors but leveling down higher education that still needs to be called out for what it is uh, and so it's going to make the sort of nuance of the argument really quite complicated but but there's a reality there isn't there so you know if it proves to be the case that trying to implement you know student number controls on the basis of minimum entry criteria actually proves to be really complicated and you know you'd, you'd end up being the kind of enemy of opportunity and if it's the case that lowering the unit of resource would make things very very difficult for these kind of large anchor institutions you've got one option left which is to play with the terms and conditions that students have signed up for and Steph you said you know it's really important that students understand what they're signing up for part of the problem of course is that when it comes to student loans the government can retrospectively change the terms and conditions after you've signed up for the loan so you know isn't it a decent guess that you know in the end what will happen when they sort of run out of time in october november is that they'll just make graduates pay back more absolutely i think that's always going to be the case um from what i remember when i was a student to now is completely different and it's a case of that constant well how can they do that and like you said they can do it retrospectively whereas we know that in other sort of legal terms they would never be able to put in retrospective uh, measures in other cases but it always seems that no matter the time or day it is either the graduate or the student themselves that is constantly at, put at a detriment and it's a shame really because they are the future the present and the future of you know the UK and you know the world as a whole and we should be supporting them and nurturing that rather than sticking it to them at every opportunity when it's just the simplest option to the government. Aaron, you're a politics watcher. <laughs> at, the, at the macro level, why does it feel like this government isn't really interested in people that are under 50? You know, what's going on? Why is there such a lack of focus on youth unemployment, students, you know, this today, a lack of focus on schools? What's going on there? I think it's votes, simple as that. Um, you know, the evidence suggests that, uh, um, you know, over the age of 50, uh, much more likely to vote Conservative than, than any other party. Uh, and they've really focused in on that as a, as a government. And, you know, to be fair, it's paid electoral dividends to uh, Boris Johnson so far. Uh, I, I think it puts uh, problems in storage. Uh, I think there is a real issue uh, with um, access to uh, the housing market and good employment and well-paid jobs, um, which is, you know, currently being felt by people in their 20s and in their in their 30s. But it isn't making a difference to the electoral map in a way in which governments are really being uh, pressed. And, uh, you know, I think we've got to ask some questions of the opposition as well. You know, they're yet to really sketch out what their policy agenda is under Keir Starmer. Um, at the moment, it seems like there's going to be a bit of a focus on social care at one end and maybe education, but probably schools at the other end. Um, arguably, they are the most important things to fix, but it leaves that it leaves that squeezed middle in terms of 
age and also that squeezed middle in terms of incomes being left with no real advocates for them in the political arena. Now, uh, Wonky's editor Debbie McVitie met up with Alice Chilver this week, who's chair of the Women's Higher Education Network. Uh, Let's find out more. Alice, thank you so much for taking the time. Tell us about the campaign that you've just launched. Well, there are today in the UK, there are 35 black women professors, 35 um, there are there are some twelve thousand white men professors, uh, almost five thousand white women professors, a thousand five hundred um, black and minority ethnic men, and five hundred almost black and minority ethnic women. Um, but if you look down at that data uh, a little bit more, um, uh, um, the the picture is is really quite stark. So in terms of the race of women professors, there are only 35 black women professors in the UK higher education sector today compared to 180 Asian women professors, for instance. So we've got a real, real problem um, and we need to do something about it. And, you know, our institutions are, are aware of racial inequalities and institutional racism, and there is lots happening at the moment um, uh, in this space. But I'm not convinced that our universities really know what to do. Um, and I'm not convinced that we're really going to make, be able to make progress quickly. Um, and that's what WEN is all about. Um, WEN is an institution that is, sorry, WEN is a, a social enterprise. We are dedicated to equity of opportunity for women working in higher education. And we're trying to speed up progress by helping women to achieve their ambitions, but also by working with institutions to remove systemic and cultural barriers. So um, we um, are completely shocked by this statistic of 35 black women professors and want to see uh, change happening and change happening fast. So we've set ourselves a target of um, doing something in order to be able to see 100 black women professors being in post. And just yesterday, um, Uh, or just this week, we have launched, uh, we have officially announced the launching of a programme called 100 Black Women Professors Now. Fantastic. And earlier in the week, you held an event at which, you know, you heard from some of those current Black women professors about their experience. What jumped out at you in terms of uh, the particular challenges and barriers that those women have faced in their careers? Well, I think what's really important to understand is that uh, not all women are the same, not all Black women are the same. Um, We Everybody has a different experience, a different experience of progressing their career in higher education, a different experience of, um, in some cases, racism, uh, bullying and harassment, um, uh, uh, very unpleasant aspects of culture. Not everyone has all of those experiences, though, and everyone's experience is unique. And I think it's that's definitely one of the things that stood out from the uh, launch event for the programme this week, that it's really important to understand um, everyone's own unique experiences and treat everyone as individuals. And what's your call to action, I guess, I mean, both both for universities, but also for, um, you know, allies, people who who support and care about this agenda and, and want to be kind of great, great allies to seeing seeing the results you're looking for? Yeah, so we have launched this programme. It's, it's a pilot programme. So we've got six fantastic organisations that are going to be working with us to, to see if we can accelerate change. So that's the Open University, Manchester University, Loughborough, Leeds, De Montford and the University of East London. So we are partnering with these institutions. Um, to deliver a programme over the next 12 months where we'll be working with their vice chancellors, uh, senior leaders, heads of department and black academic women too. Um, So in terms of um, uh, people across the sector getting behind this agenda and supporting this to happen, um, what I would encourage is for you to be thinking about in your institutions whether um, accelerating change in this way would be something that you'd like to do and whether therefore you might like to partner partner with us in, in, um, in future years. Also, there's lots more discussion to be had about the rest of the pipeline. So this program is looking at um, um, women who already have an academic tenured position and how we can accelerate their progress. But what about those women who don't yet have an academic tenured position who are on fixed term contracts? And in fact, um, uh, some of the data reveals that uh, fixed term research staff are amongst the most racially diverse population of staff in the sector. Um, so how can we make sure that the sector is able to retain that sort of talent? So we need to have all of those sort of conversations and we're about to start um, some focus groups and uh, other set up some other op- opportunities to start exploring what we could do in that space. So if you want to get involved, please get in touch with Gwen. But I think um, it's much more personal than that, too. Um you know, I think that what we really need to be thinking about doing is looking around, looking around at our teams. Uh, you know, how diverse really are they? Um, looking at 
around at the people that we interact with, that we collaborate with at work and between our institutions? What is the level of diversity like and, and why is it like that? And what can we do differently? So I think, you know, this starts with each of us individually as individuals looking around ourselves. We also need to do work ourselves, each of us, in understanding our own racial identity. Um, and I think that critically, we need to make sure that we know what racism looks like because it's sometimes can be difficult to detect um, or not obvious to see, but we need to make sure that we understand what racism looks like so that when we do see it, we can call it out, we can do something. And so we sort of need to prepare ourselves as well to be confident to know what to say when we see it. So I think that, you know, we can talk about institutional strategies and we could talk about, you know, national programs, but this is work that really you know, needs to start at an individual personal level. And I think understanding what racism is, being able to recognise it and knowing and being confident to call it out when we see it is something that we can each do. Now, meanwhile this week, boffins at the University of Cambridge... Uh, you'll notice that when people are inventing things in the press, they're boffins, and when they are complaining about things, they're dons. But anyway, uh, this week, boffins at the University of Cambridge have released details of two studies carried out last year on its COVID-19 control strategies. Steph, fill us in. So, yes, with September around the corner, alongside a horde of new students who feel they are odor freshers, there is a lot to be discussed. Um, we've seen that the COVID-19 Genomic UK Consortium analysed over 446 genomes from the university testing programmes and found that 70% of all the cases belong to a sing singular genetic cluster likely dispersed by students from a singular nightclub and with limited transmission in academic settings but a much higher transmission within student accommodation there's definitely something to be discussed here. Um, the, U the government roadmap is leading us to believe that the majority of public spaces are going to be at full capacity by autumn. And with that prediction being that it's unlikely that 18 to 22 year olds are going to be fully vaccinated by then. So with the University of Cambridge releasing this study um, alongside, you know, the government roadmap, etc. There's a lot of questions to be had, you know, um, what are universities going to do? Should it be down to them to decide individually? Are they going to be setting themselves up for a compare the COVID plan reaction similar to last year? Should they be delaying their start dates? Should they be phasing returns? Like, what do they do? And I think the more important question for me is how do they communicate that with students? Do they give them the rosy picture or do they tell them the belts and braces version with all of the contingency plans? And when do they tell them? Do they tell them now or do they apply for an extension to that communication? Aaron, this is, you know, there, there's three, I'm thinking of three rooms here in my head. There's a sort of lecture theatre, which lots of people are discussing. Well, you know, it may well have to be two metres plus, so we'll run those online. Fine. There's your sweaty nightclub in a basement somewhere in Cambridge. They're normally quite small from memory, which, you know, as far as we know, there won't be any restrictions on come June the 21st. But will there? You know, you know, will the 21st of June announcement be different? What do you do about, in particular, young people that haven't been double vaxxed in terms of those spaces? And then you've got... You know, institutional accommodation, barracks, care homes, halls. <laughs> and, you know, if this study is telling us, as Steph points out, that all of the transmission was in halls and nightclubs, we can't only secure lecture theatres in September, can we? Don't we have to deal with the other two? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, and the sooner that that becomes clearer in the eyes of the government and for the planners at universities and the management teams of universities, the better. Um, uh, I think we're sleepwalking into yet another uh, chaotic period for universities. Um, and, and I don't blame universities. They've been listening attentively uh, and responding to the government advice as it's been moving and changing over the last uh, 12 or 14 uh, months. But we have a challenge coming up. Let's be in no doubt about it. We know that for the uh, school leaver population going to university, they're going to be amongst the last to uh, receive their uh, vaccine. And so the prospect by September, October, uh, that they're going to be double vaccinated, I think is unlikely. And even if we continue to make really good strides with our um, domestic population being vaccinated, uh, we've got the issue with international students. Uh, and so we'd still be needing to face this question. I think it seems so um, ridiculous that we would make this much progress as a country, uh, uh, apply restrictions, let's say, when it comes to teaching and then not apply any restrictions when it comes to halls and accommodation. Uh, now, I know that the, the, the wiggle room for universities to uh, 
um, you know, come up with workarounds is relatively limited. But surely we must have learned the lessons of uh, the return of, uh, you know, what happened last September and then uh, the movements across the country before and after Christmas. Surely it can't be third time unlucky, but I fear we may be, as I say, sleepwalking into yet another chaotic period. Steph, you've been, you know, you've been knocking around all the important meetings this year as the the too little too late guidance has repeatedly dropped at entirely the wrong moment. You know, what is required here? What would be the ideal? Are we are we talking, you know, earlier guidance from DFE or is it, you know, some kind of financial underwriting? Do we, should we be telling students to move house to their university town or city or should we tell them to stay away? You know, what, what in an ideal world, given the factors that, you know, you've read about in these Cambridge studies, what would we do? You know, what would the government be doing? I think that's a really difficult one to um, answer because I think for different student populations, it will be different answers dependent on what they are coming to university for. Some of us do come for the academic experience. Some of us come, you know, to find ourselves in a different place and rediscover who we are. Uh, I was more academic, obviously. So I think there are different reasons why students come to university. And so I don't think there is one catch-all for that will please everyone. Um, I think what would be really important, though, is that it is a community discussion. So it's not just the university working within its confines, but working with the local uh, economy around it, working with nightclubs to ensure that they are safe for their students. Because I truly believe that the duty of care that universities have extends to the community around it. So I think working with them. But I do think it is massively important that when universities have a plan that they tell students so students can make reasonable decisions. Universities cannot make the decisions for all students, but it can and must give students the information to make reasonable, cost effective in some circumstances decisions that will you know, affect them not just now, but four years to come. And, and you know, Aaron, as Steph points out, you know, that, that this is different for different students. I mean, it's also different for different providers, isn't it? I mean, one of the things about the Cambridge studies is that they found, you know, quite a bit of transmission between students, not that much transmission between students and the local community. But, you know, if I think about the cliches that would attach themselves to Cambridge, they're different to the cliches that I might imagine for ARU up the road, right? So, you know, the, 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 the being able to transpose the lessons from this sort of stuff is difficult in different providers, isn't it? And, and, you know, the reality is it's going to be a chaotic clearing period. No one really knows what's going to happen with A levels and B techs and so on. There's, you know, there are real pressures on universities to recruit, despite the fact that in some cases it might not be in students' best interest to go through what we went through last, you know, September, October, November, December again. Well, this is where, and and it's played out in the DfE guidance, you know, uh, when you've, when those of us that have had to read the DfE guidance, we've been um, reading a description of a particular type of uh, university experience. And sometimes that translates to the ex- uh, to the institutions we're involved with. And oftentimes it doesn't. But you're right. There is a financial reality here, which uh, will provide a real uh, conflict for universities with their decision making over the summer. Uh, we were talking earlier about pressures on uh, higher education finance, some of the org uh, recommendations possibly on their, on, on their way down. So universities will feel at one level a pressure to get bums on seats, to try and get as many students that are still paying them £9,250 before it turns into £7,500, uh, to put it very crudely. Um, and so I, I think you know there, there will be some real challenges for uh, universities trying to uh, get money uh, through the door whilst also preserving and protecting the student experience. And Steph, the other thing that strikes me, you know that my kind of three buildings thing, you've got your lecture theatre, you've got your nightclub, you've got your, you know, hotel style halls. And obviously not every provider has all three, not every provider focuses on all three. And actually, not every student would frequent all three. But nevertheless, all three are, you know, kind of centres of viral transmission. The thing that strikes me about all three is they're all really efficient. And there's lots of talk about, you know, more small group teaching or being able to deliver a social experience in smaller groups, you know, the kind of stuff that people are doing at the moment in in groups of six, you know, that kind of thing. But the reality is that a lot of the student experience is delivered in spaces that are engineered for efficiency. And the problem with that is when you've got an airborne, you know, virus causing a global pandemic, you have to take a lot of that kind of 
efficiency out of play for safety reasons. And that, I mean, there's not really a way around that in terms of the student experience, is there? I think it's about communicating with students and co-creating that experience with them. That's what's important, finding out what is important to students and working with them to create what is possible. And again, it's about giving them the information for them to be reasonable. I think one of the biggest issues over the past year is keeping students in the dark. So students read something, believe that's the experience they're going to get. But when they come onto campus or when they receive that email telling them what their student experience is going to look like, it's a bit too little too late. And the um, the uproar is already there because they've waited long enough for this moment to be in education. And it feels like that's not the experience they're getting. So I think it's more about making sure that we are communicating with students and working with them and especially working with uh, students unions, which are really important uh, in sort of negotiating this turbulent time that we are going to be going through. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So with that medieval curriculum that you did your general arts degree first and then you studied um, further to become a a master so that you went on to teach, it was quite clear that you did that in the general sum of knowledge of mankind in in arts, in in, in the kind of broader sense of of what you might know about. What you would then go on and do, if if you were interested in this, is study one of the higher faculties. And there were three higher faculties, law, theology, and medicine. These are the things that uh, you could only do after you had first taken um, your arts degree. And there's a remnant of that, both in in terms of in the UK, but also in the US. So, for example, at, at Oxford, you now, um, once you've got your MA, uh, you can go on and do a Bachelor in Civil Laws as a postgraduate degree, because that's the beginning stage of, of starting the, the, the work. But the, the most uh, people were aiming for the degree of doctor, and you could only get a degree of the degree of doctor in a higher faculty. There was no, In the UK, there wasn't a tradition of getting a, a higher a doctorate uh, in arts. So slowly these develop um, into uh, um, slightly uh, um, unregulated. Um, the people would come back and do an exercise, submit some work, um, and they would get these higher degrees um, in a lovely red gown. Uh, and that's 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 how those higher degrees went. So when the reforming exercise comes um, in the 19th century, and, and universities are starting to develop different subjects, uh, they add to these higher degrees, degrees in letters or science, and therefore a higher degree starts on that thing. And there's also a sense that that prolonged study that you might do after first having done your degree should be rewarded by some kind of doctorate degree. It's not really a research degree, but it's a kind of way of recognising people might do that. And so there's a sense that we might take uh, the uh, Doctor of Science degree and make it into a, a research degree. But the other tradition, which comes to us um, both directly from Germany but also from the US, is this notion that having done your first general degree, you then specialise. So the Americans, the specialisation in a professional degree comes at the postgraduate level. You don't study undergraduate law, you study it uh, at a postgraduate level. And that's more of a direct inheritor of that medieval course structure. General education first, then specialise in professional education afterwards. But also, they take on the idea that um, a doctorate degree in arts might also be something uh, that we might take forward. Now, the German translation, the German way that they would approach that, is that they describe their arts faculty as the philosophical faculty. So it's a doctorate in philosophy that the Americans take forward. That idea that you would uh, have a doctorate in philosophy, a doctorate in a specialised area of knowledge that wasn't law, theology or medicine. And so Yale first starts um, with that, um, and then there's a development uh, as Johns Hopkins University to develop a rigorous training towards the PhD. Uh, and that's that set up. Uh, and so if you want to do further study, you can, if you're an American, you can go to one of these research degrees. Generally, if people want to do that further study, they go to uh, a German university um, to take a, a philosophical degree. Now, all of that shifts um, because with the First World War, no one can go to Germany to take a first, uh, up one of these degrees. Uh, and so this forces the issue forces the issue in the UK two ways. Firstly, there are Americans who want to come to Europe uh, and do further study, and we don't have anything appropriate for them to do. Uh, and that becomes particularly um, clear in the beginning of the 
20th century because Rhodes scholars have been given large amounts of money to come to the UK, but they really want to do more study uh, and they want to have a degree to reward them for that. Um, but also because that extra training of scientists is something that they want to get together. So the UK has a wonderful moment of coherence and organisation uh, and facilitated by the government, actually also the War Office, organises a conference to set up the philosophy degree, that that uh, PhD. And the universities all come, all send delegates, and they set out the requirements so that actually, given that we normally, you know, protesting about our autonomy and doing things, we come together in a pool so that the PhD sets off in pretty much the same way across all of the UK universities. Uh, and so it, it goes off. Obviously, there are some quirks, um, Oxford calling it a DPhil rather than a PhD, uh, but actually we, we go off in a, in, a, in a relatively straightforward way because we've come together to deal with uh, a market for doing these things, an opportunity to uh, take forward higher learning uh, and a, a chance to seal the thunder on our counterparts in Europe. So there we go, a great development in English higher education. British education. Now, it's like a machine. The Office for Students has fired out yet another set of experimental statistics. Aaron, tell us more about today's data. Yes, another data download from the Office for Students. This time, uh, it's what they describe as experimental statistics looking at geographical distribution of the local graduate opportunities. Uh, So this report uh, presents uh, a method for grouping travel-to-work areas, which capture local areas based on commuting uh, patterns according to local graduate earnings and rates of highly skilled employment, drawing on the the LEO or the census from 2011's uh, data. Uh, So it's split into... uh, sort of five quintiles, Q1 being the lowest rates of graduate opportunity and Q5 being the highest. And perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, you've got in Q5 and Q4, uh, there's a bit of a huddle around London and the southeast with the strongest opportunities and uh, much of the northeast uh, and the coastline along there forming a large chunk of the Q1 uh, there's also the other thing to perhaps draw out is the dimension in reg- with regard to uh, to race. Uh, so black graduates are almost four times more likely to live in areas with the highest graduate opportunity rates. Um, and, and OFS compared only graduates living in these top quintile areas and found that uh, nearly three quarters of white graduates earned above the threshold um, or in higher level study compared to just 60% of black graduates. So um, it, I, I, I don't think it told us anything desperately new, but it just reinforced that by the basis of geography and by ethnicity, there are still stubborn gaps to be addressed. Steph, you're a um, talented, sharp, you know, success story graduate from UCLan. You've got a graduate job, right? You know, you've got a job after being a SAB, haven't you? What, what, what are you going to do? Tell us. Absolutely. I'm going to be working with the university in their academic registry team. What, in, Pre- in much- Preston? In sunny Preston. Yeah, but Steph, you're going to mess up the stats. <laughs> I know I'm like why aren't you why aren't you on a train on a virgin train to Houston uh where you can you know come and uh, eat your you know prep salads every day where you know your graduate salary will be about 6 grand more and then you'll prop up the university's numbers why are you not hurtling yourself to the southeast well first of all they don't do gravy in chip shops so that's outrageous <laughs> um but second of all because it's completely priced out um if you base um, what I, where I currently am to London, you w- I would never be able to live in London based on the wages there and the cost of living in London, which is massive. Whereas and, in Preston, and, and, that's and in not lots the case. Of cases, the cost of spending six months earning nothing in order to get a job in London, the evidence would tell us. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would love nothing more than to be able to spend six months uh, working for absolutely nothing um, but unfortunately, that will not pay my rent. That will not pay for my uh, movie subscription either. So unfortunately, that's not something I can do. But not only that, you create communities where you are. Uh, you know, you get to know the area. You know, you want to stay with family. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it's that you want to stay where people who you have formed relationships with are. But this is the great dichotomy, isn't it? Because on the one hand... You know, this is a government that talks about, I mean, I'm not sure it's ever visited it, but it talks about the North. 
as part of its kind of electoral coalition and talks about levelling up and, and so on. You know, if you were thinking of an anchor institution in the north, and you know, one of the ones that would come to mind would be UCLan and all the amazing work that it does, both with students and in its supply chains and for the local area and for Preston as a, as a place and so on. But on the other hand, universities are being judged by their graduate recruitment numbers. And that would suggest that the smart thing to do is buy lots and lots of people, some season tickets to, you know, that train to Euston and get them down into the southeast. You know, what is that? You know, you'll have been in the meeting, Steph. What, what is the university to do? Is it supposed to be building up the area or is it supposed to be, you know, shoveling people into, you know, better paid graduate jobs in other places? The university in terms of career prospects for its students is about equipping students no matter where they go to ensure that they are fully ready for wherever they go and are fully supported. Um, and I think that's the big one for them. It's about making sure that they are employable and industry ready. Wonkfest, our festival of higher education, returns in June. And because of the year we've all just had, we're using it as an opportunity to look ahead. What worked, what didn't, and how can we come back stronger as universities, professionals, and as a sector? And crucially, how can higher education drive the global recovery? It's all about how we build back higher. We'll hear from people who've been at the heart of the government response, like National Statistician Ian Diamond, Vice-Chancellors, Students' Union Officers, and literally, and I mean literally, everything and everyone in between. It's online only this year, well, because you know why. But we're working hard to keep the best of the Wonkfest you know, bustling with insights you can take back to your institutions at the end, and Team Wonky will be on hand every step of the way to help guide you through it. It's all happening on 9th and 10th of June. The programme is out now and you can find out more and book your tickets at wonkfest.co.uk. And as usual, group discounts and plus and partner rate supply. We look forward to seeing you in June to help us build back higher together. And finally, after a string of allegations in drama schools, equity has intervened. Steph, what are they saying? So, um, the union equity is saying that we need a change from the top down when it comes to confronting allegations around sexual assault. So, this comes after an investigation by The Telegraph found evidence of bullying alongside sexual assault at top drama schools in the UK. And for drama and art schools leading into the industries they do, there is a dark reputation, which we've seen come to light in recent years through the Me Too movement. But this also comes at a time where universities are truly in the hot seat when it comes to sexual harassment and misconduct within the sector. We've seen it in the documentary The Hunting Ground, which outlined issues in America. But more recently in the UK, we've seen student bodies take to social media to raise awareness of this issue that they feel is not being resolved. Uh, The BBC reported that female students are calling for mandatory policy to deal with allegations alongside a broader uh, sector discussion around mandatory consent training which is great to hear as long as it's fully implemented and as a biased speaker here is done in consultation with student unions but there's also the discussion around staff student relationships but it seems to be a case of a little less conversation and maybe a little more action needed please um there's so many questions here does how does the he sector address these long-standing issues creating preemptive measures to ensure institutions are safe havens and then as institutions pride themselves on being industry leading forging these industry networks for industry ready students do institutes have that duty of care to ensure that their networks are safe for their alumni and that the alumni feel empowered and informed enough to be vocal when required Aaron you know one of the things that you know struck me about you know delving into some of the cases the Telegraph has highlighted is this sense that in quite small, tight-knit, professional, ambitious pockets of education, in this case, in a lot of cases, pockets of higher education, there are greater risks of abuse and harassment than in other parts of the sector. And that's not to say there aren't risks everywhere, but, you know, these types of places, you know, drama schools or medical schools or very small specialist providers, conservatoires, and, you know, all that sort of stuff, this needs... A kind of targeted at the, at the risk of using overusing this phrase risk-based approach doesn't it 
Very much so. Yes, I mean, the idea that this is just simply, you know, uh, the preserve of, of drama schools is, of course, uh, not the case. <laughs> um, there are lots of examples, lots of disciplines, also lots of levels of study. I mean, uh, at postgraduate level where uh, a, a PhD student and their, and their supervisor um, will, will, for instance, you know, there's a, it, it's wherever there is a, a it, it, wherever there's a power dynamic or wherever, wherever there are small small groups uh, it, it, it's the uh, um, it provides the uh, sort of backdrop for where uh, this sort of um, uh, you know inappropriate um, uh, behavior can fester and and uh, I, I, you know if I look back over the last 10 years uh, in some respects I'm heartened by the fact that this is a great deal more visible it is being spoken about in a more significant way but then when I still look at the evidence about what students say particularly female students but um, uh, you know there, there is there is uh, still data for all sorts of students who face um, uh, unwarranted and, and unwelcome um, uh, kind of attention in, in, in this way um, and when I look at the reporting data it is highly variable across the system and that to me doesn't point to the fact that instances are highly variable across the sector it suggests to me that the ability for uh, students to feel comfortable to report isn't as equal as it needs to be. And I get that there's a long list of things for the regulator, the Office of Students in England and, and, and regulators elsewhere to look at. But if a, if a student feels unsafe, this has surely got to be one of the most important things for the regulators to be considering, but also for institutions and their students' unions to be working on together to try and further eradicate the progress that has been, to be fair, started to be made over the last decade or so. Steph, in a big university like UCLan, I guess if a student is in a particular academic department or whatever and wanted to make a complaint about something going on in that department, they could go off to the central university and have some confidence that, you know, that be dealt with in a in an independent way because it's you know a kind of separate part of the university but this is much harder in you know smaller providers or quite tight-knit departments isn't it you know how do you get to the point where students feel confident to raise something that could be really controversial for their kind of you know bit of the bit of the bit, bit, bit their little bit of the sector i think that's again a very interesting question i think there's never going to be one set of uh, like one framework that will fit all institutions, because like you said, there are varying different um, sizes of institution and there will be institutions where everyone knows everyone and that's difficult. And I think that's where the policy really needs to be um, and, and really just to say, strong. We shouldn't decry that, should we? Because, you know, there are lots of students who, who, who feel that their higher education experience is impersonal. Who, who actively disagree on NSS question 21 about feeling part of a community. You know, in some ways, feeling part of a tight-knit community will be amazing for most students most of the time. But th there are some moments where it goes wrong, right? Absolutely. There are some moments where it goes wrong. You know, that WhatsApp message that happens and then everyone knows what's happening and what's going on and you're the focus of you know, so many things. And I think what is massively necessary in any sort of situation is that the wraparound support that happens. So it is not that student feeling very alone in making a complaint. What then happens is that well-being is um, wrapped around that student, that we make it clear to students that there is a strict process, that, you know, they should expect standards of professionalism from the institution um, and that they have they have so many different options but that needs to be put before them when a student is faced with this situation it's all about a loss of control and they want to regain that control so we need to make sure that the information is there for them to make decisions and to regain that control in a way that they feel is fitting for them and i think that's really important regaining that sense of control but making it really clear to students that we want to hear from them that it, they will be listened to that they will have a really strong policy and process to go off of and that people can deal with this in a professional manner i think it's all about making sure that students know the process understand the process and can ask questions at any time and that they have that wraparound support regardless of whether you have a massive institution or a very small one it's all about the support for that student aaron you, you know you've you, you are both currently and, and have previously been involved in a number of you know genuinely quite small specialist providers right um, isn't it the case that on some of this stuff, 
you know, if we're being honest and we take a kind of macro look at this, there, pr- there probably isn't the kind of level of expertise and capacity to be able to pull some of this kind of culture change and process stuff off within every small provider. Doesn't there need to be some collaboration amongst small and specialist providers to get to get where we where, where we need to be? Yeah, it's certainly fair to say that for some of the smallest uh, and most specialist uh, providers, some some of some of whom are most vulnerable to these sorts of, of instances, they just don't have the capacity and the resource to uh, bring in you know teams of counsellors or teams of uh, uh, or, or sophisticated networks for for reporting. And so there does need to be some degree of uh, of, of collaboration. This is not a space in which institutions uh, are, are are competing or, or ought to be competing. Um, and uh, it's it's been a shame that we've seen sometimes the kind of the dismantling of some of the national networks, whether it's frankly to do with um, you know kind of access, but also in 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 this space. I think it would be really great to see some initiatives where institutions can join up, uh, work together, help one another out, share their expertise um, for the for the ultimate benefit of students um, both being safer and certainly feeling uh, safer. Um, and I hope that that's something that um, the sector can work together on. You know, you you, you definitely work. At- a university that talks a lot about its partnerships with you know industry you know both around the recruitment of students and you know work that gets done and you know the pipeline of graduates you know all that kind of stuff about economic regeneration and 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 partnerships with industry and business but i don't hear a lot of active partnership work going on between universities and industry over changing the culture in their industry and you know most industries surely have got problems with uh, you know, racism in terms of their, you know, hiring and firing. You know, most industries presumably have got a version of the kind of Me Too story in terms of pockets of their industries protecting abusers. You know, there needs to be partnerships with industry too, don't there? If if people are training future nurses and future doctors and future lawyers. And- I'm so glad you asked this because I, I truly believe, and I think I speak for a lot of officers here, that the ethics of a university do not stop being afforded to a student once they cross that graduation stage. They should be there. They should make sure that that student, wherever they go into the networks, that they endorse, you know, they bring these uh, networks into the university to speak to their students. They need to make sure that they are safe places for their students. We should never endorse industry um, partners or whatever you want to call them if we don't think that their ethics meet the values that we are teaching our students about respect, about, you know, uh, intersectional um, support. If they're not meeting them, why are we endorsing them? What is more important, our students or our networks, do we, you know, turn a blind eye to the misgivings of an industry simply to meet uh, graduate outcomes? I would like to think that that isn't the case. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks very much to Aaron, Steph, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.